Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yep. There you go. Oh, thank you. Stole that from you. Thank you to all of our facilitators uh, for all they do. It's a it's a big effort uh, to uh, facilitate these groups, um, but it is one that is I believe very vital and very important. Uh, to our ministry here at Y Bible. And so those will be starting in the next couple of weeks. And again, uh, we have Sunday school coming up and Awana will be coming up. A lot of things happening now that the, the summer's coming to an end. I know it doesn't feel like it with the heat. The summer is coming to an end. The days seem like they're getting shorter. Uh, if you were with us last week, you had the opportunity to hear from one of our missionaries, Pastor Jason Berger from New Gloucester. Um, and he was here along with his family. And I tell you what, it, it, it's always nice to hear from our missionaries as uh, we do financially, as a church, support them. We support other missionaries uh, and organizations. Uh, we have a ministry wall in our foyer underneath the TV. Uh, you can take a card there. Please be praying for them. Uh, you, you have the opportunity uh, through the church to support them. You can always give a special gift if you want to earmark anything. Uh, but the most important thing that you can do for our missionaries is to be praying for them. And so I hope that you do pray for each one of our missionaries. That was uh, last week. And of course, the week before, we were back into our study of Galatians. And so we're going to hop back into the book of Galatians today. So if you have your Bibles, uh, if you have an electronic device, go ahead and turn there. We do have Bibles up here. I would love for you to have that on your lap so you can see it in context. We also have it printed up on your uh, bulletin as well. We're going to be in Galatians and in chapter three. If you were here with us a couple of weeks ago, you'll remember that we just looked at one verse. We just did one verse of chapter three. Uh, Paul was just coming off of the heels of his confrontation with Peter. As we know that Peter was acting hypocritically. He wasn't acting in accordance to what he actually believed. His actions were undermining a very important doctrine. In fact, probably the most important doctrine in all of Christianity. That is the doctrine of justification by grace through faith and not by works. And so Paul in verse one of chapter three, in a very frustrated and exhausted tone says, oh, you foolish, foolish Galatians. See, he needed to remind them about the beautiful cross of Jesus Christ. He wanted to make sure that they were not tricked into thinking anything less about the cross. They needed to be reminded, even though they were only 20 some odd years out from the events of the cross, they needed to be reminded about Jesus and what he did and of course, also, we need to as well. It should be on our lips and lived out in our lives. And so Paul is going to continue with his assault on those to add to the equation of justification by faith. But he's going to do it in a slightly different way. So what I want to do together this morning is just read it. We're going to start and do the whole paragraph, um, starting in chapter 3, verse 1, going through verse 5. Verse 1, it says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Let's uh, open up with a word of prayer before we get into the word this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you uh, for the sufficiency of your word. Lord, we understand this to be your written, inspired, inerrant word from your mouth. And so, Lord, we want to hear from you today. 
Lord, may it be you that we hear from. Uh, Lord, may we put all the other distractions to the side and hear what you have to say to your people this morning. We ask your blessing upon our time this morning. We ask all of this in your son's precious name. Amen. So the complete paragraph, again, is in verses uh, one through five. And again, we looked at one verse a couple of weeks ago. We're going to look at the rest of the paragraph this morning. And the questions, if you remember, that Paul is continually asking, they're going to keep coming from Paul. They're rhetorical in nature, and they're that way, so it, it is intended for his audience, his audience as he was writing to, also you and I. It's intended to make us pause, to think, and to consider. And so this is what Paul intended to, to do with his audience, the Galatian believers. He wanted to make them think. He needed to make a point, and he needed them to see it from their own lives, their, so, their own experience. So in verse 2, we get another question, but notice how he phrases it. He says, now, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. The verbiage of this question and the tone in which it was asked actually is probably quite familiar to some of us. That line of questioning causes major concern. It's, it's kind of a setup. It's, it's uh, you know what, I just, I want to know one thing. You just tell me this one thing. You ever had a discussion like that? Tell me if this thing is true. Instantly, you know you're being set up because, you know, the person asking the question already knows the answer, or at least they think they know. Gentlemen, you ever had this line of questioning from your wife? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know you're in trouble. Perhaps you get a little lump in your throat. You're a little concerned. She may say, okay, well, tell me this then. How about this? And you know the next thing that comes out of her mouth, probably not going to be good. You know you're in trouble, and you, you know you better have an answer. You're just hoping it's the right one. Kids, have you ever had that happen from your parents? You, you, maybe from your mom or dad, your parents may say something like this. Okay, answer me this. What time are you supposed to be home? No, no, what, what time is it now? Okay, well, I want to know one thing. Did you ever think about calling? I was notorious for that in college. I would leave my house and it was a two-hour drive to uh, where I went to college and my mom would say, hey, give me a call when you get home. Yep, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a call when I get to my dorm room. Never did. It was probably a couple days later. For all she knows, I'm laying in a ditch dead. Of course, I'm just taking classes. But I would call eventually. I'm sorry, Mom, for what I had to put you through. But you know that line of questioning. You know what I'm talking about. Paul sometimes has to treat his readers like children. We see that in 1 Corinthians. And now he just wants to know one thing. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? See, what Paul is going to do over the course of these next few verses is he is going to pit one idea against another. One concept versus another concept. The first one is going to be works versus hearing. Then we're going to see spirit versus flesh. And finally, beginning versus completion. So the first one is about works versus hearing. Paul says, did you receive the spirit by keeping the law or by hearing with faith? What he's talking about here is he's talking about conversion. He's saying, how, how, how did you all become a Christian? Or as we say in our Christianese terms, how is it that you were saved? But notice how he puts it. Did you receive the spirit? He uses the term receive, which carries with it the idea of something that is given and something that is not earned. If you're receiving, which is giving, you're receiving something that's offered. It's not earned or deserved. That's what happens when you're given a gift. When you're given a gift, you are grateful. You appreciate it, but you know you didn't earn it. This is what happened to the Galatians. This is what happened to you and I as believers as well. If you're a believer here this morning, you are a believer because you received the gift of salvation. It's because it was given. It was a gift that was an act of God from start to finish, not based on our own merit. 
This has been the emphasis of the entire letter. Paul defended it in his introduction to this letter. That a different gospel is no gospel at all. Then he moves on and he, and he hits the argument from his own personal experience. He gives his own testimony. In chapter 2, he took the perspective or the point of view of others as he explained what happened at the Jerusalem Council. Then he even took the approach of showing it from a leader's standpoint as he confronted Peter. And now, after all of that, he wants them to see it from their own perspective, from their own lives and experience. How did you receive the Spirit? See, this is the first time in this letter the Holy Spirit is mentioned, but it won't be the last. Paul will, uh, uh, will kick off chapter 3 here, just introducing the Holy Spirit, and then he will mention the Holy Spirit 16 more times in the book. So, how did you receive the Spirit? Well, if you are a believer, then you have received the Spirit. At the moment of salvation, believers are now indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6 that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. That is, resides in you. That is, takes up residence. That happens at the moment of salvation. It's not a second blessing sort of thing. It's not like at, at salvation you just get a little bit and then the rest of your life you have to jump through hoops and hoping you'll just get a little bit more. No, we have the Holy Spirit. It was given at the day of Pentecost. Paul makes that clear in, in Romans 8 as he says, If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. One author says this, the gift of the Holy Spirit is the believer's most unmistakable evidence of God's favor. His greatest proof of salvation and guarantee of eternal glory. See, that is how you and I live. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul's going to make that clear as we will get into the fruits of the Spirit. You know them from chapter 5. He says we live by the Spirit. It's eternal reality. Listen to Romans 8, 3 through 4. He says, He sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So Paul's question is, how did the Spirit come to you? Was it by works of the law? Was it by following the law of Moses or some ritualistic law? Or, and of course, this is all rhetorical questions. The answer is obvious. Or did it come by, look at verse 2, receiving by hearing with faith. The literal translation of this is, did you believe what you heard? I want you to think back with me just for a moment. And you can turn here if you want to. Acts chapter 2. We're, not, we're just going to spend a little bit of time there. But when you think about Acts chapter 2, I want you to think one thing. I want you to think birth of the church. Because that's exactly where it all happened on the day of Pentecost. Jesus had already risen and ascended to heaven. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father because his work was complete. After that, on the day of Pentecost, which is 50 days after the Passover, they were gathered, the disciples were gathered along with other people, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And on that day, Peter stood up and he gave the first sermon ever, starting in chapter, uh, verse 14 of chapter 2. It says that he raised his voice and he declared, meaning he had authority. And of course, he had that authority directly from Jesus Christ. Peter was to declare the word of God. He was to declare the gospel. And right there in Acts 2, he did just that. Again, we're not going to look all at it, but I, I want you to maybe go back and read that sometime. He, he brought the, 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 the word on that day. He brought the Bible. He wasn't preaching some self-help guide. It wasn't some touchy-feely sermon. It was the word of God. He was preaching the Bible. 
Do you know how powerful that is? Do you realize how amazing that is? The first sermon and what sermons are based on. They're based on the word. When you come to church on Sunday morning, yes, you enjoy seeing your friends and that's great. You want to be a part of a family, but you come to hear the word of God from the living God. There's nothing more powerful than when God's word is being declared. It is his word that must be preached and taught and sung and repeated and shared. It can't be the words of some random guy. It can't be our own opinions. It can't be what we want the word to say. It must be his word. And his word is to be explained and drawn out of scripture rather than put into scripture. It must be God's word. And do you know what God's word does? God's word divides. God's word challenges God's word is a mirror that shows us our downfalls. It is, it is also a balm of healing to our soul. It is that by which we must live. We're told in Psalms that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto a path. And what does he say that we should do with it? We should hide it in our hearts, which means that we should let it take up residence. Let it change us. Let it mold us. And by the way, that is not easy, is it? Because we are so tempted to flock to those that will simply encourage us and entertain us and stroke our ego and give us what we want. But that's not the job of one who preaches the word. God's word is, in fact, encouraging. And it is actually quite entertaining if you ever get into it. But it gives meaning. God's word sheds light. It it moves our soul and convicts our hearts. It does make us uneasy. It calls us to things that we could not possibly do in and of our own strength. God's word calls us to action. We are not saved to sit on the sidelines. We are saved to serve. God's word calls us to good works that are prepared ahead of time for us. We need to get off the bench and get into the game and serve him. This is God's word that we're talking about. This is what 3,000 people responded to on the day of Pentecost on that first sermon. And when they heard the word of God preached, it says in Acts 2.37, they were pierced to the heart. That means that it, it affected their heart. It affected life change. And, and, and again, go back and read Acts chapter 2 sometimes. Maybe in your devotion. It's, it's, it's amazing. You see the response of the early church. And by the way, our response to the word should mirror their response. At the end of chapter 2, you will see that the church didn't just sit around. They were involved in ministry. Verse 42 of chapter 2 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, meaning they were learning. Look, folks, if church on Sunday for an hour or so is your biblical diet, you are malnourished. You need to be in the word, learning from God's word, hearing God's word taught. Sunday morning is a great start. So keep that going. But in a few weeks, our Sunday school program is going to start up. And it's just a half hour earlier than you were here this morning. You could be a part of that. Of course, we have our, our fall semester of life groups that you just heard about, where we not only get to learn and to, and to have the word taught, but you get to fellowship. That's what they did next in verse 42 in Acts 2. It's so important to recognize as a believer, you have other believers to walk through life with. You, you, you can support each other. You, can, you care for each other. You're, you're there for each other each and every single day. And I can't tell you how powerful that is. You can pray with and for each other. That's the next thing that Luke records in Acts 2. We need more Acts 2 churches. We do. We need more Acts 2 believers. Those that hear the word and those who respond to the word. 
That is the same word that the Galatian believers heard that was preached to them. Paul said in verse 1, he said, uh, of, of chapter 3, he says, I painted a beautiful picture of the cross of Christ. You can't mistake it. Don't be fooled by counterfeits. Don't be fooled by your pride. You responded to the word that was preached. That is true of you and I. The same word that was preached on that first sermon is the same word that we have heard. And what do we do? We respond in faith. Those 3,000 people that responded to the gospel, did they do anything to deserve the Holy Spirit? Did they do anything to deserve their salvation? Of course not. It was a gift. Again, Paul is hammering this point across. You and I need to get it as well. Peter, he speaks again further on in the book of Acts in, in chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council. And he's again speaking the word of God. And listen to what he says. He says, brethren... You know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. How did the Gentiles become believers? It was through the word. How did the Jews become believers? It was through the word. They had to hear the word. You and I, we are no different. We must hear the word and we must respond to God's word. And when we do that, we are given the Holy Spirit and it has nothing to do with us. I hope you can see the importance of that. This is not only important for you and I to understand in our own hearts and in our own minds, but it is critical that we get this and we understand it for the people that we rub shoulders with each and every single day. People must hear the word of God. Let me ask you this. Is everyone that you work with Christians? Is everyone in your family a believer? Are all of your friends believers in Christ? Do they confess him as Lord and Savior? Of course, we know the answer to that. Rhetorical, just like Paul's questions. So how are they going to respond to a gospel if they don't hear? They can't. That's where you and I come in. Romans 10, 14 through 18. I love this. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in who they have not believed? How will they believe in him who they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Verse 15. How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, and you know this, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. How will they believe in whom they have not heard? These are tough questions. Because they can't. How are they going to hear the gospel? They hear it through the life that is lived out in front of them. They hear it about from, from God's word that you share with them. When was the last time you shared your faith? When was the last time you, you shared something from God's word to someone other than maybe in your own church? See, people must hear the good news. That quote that uh, Paul uses is actually from Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. You know who Isaiah is referring to here? He's referring to those that brought the good news of their release from Babylonian captivity. What beautiful news that must have been and how beautiful those people must have looked that carried the good news. And let me tell you this, my friends, we carry the same good news. There can be freedom from captivity. There can be freedom from enslavement. There can be Freedom from imprisonment of sin. And if you and, he, you and I are here this morning and we have responded to that good news, it's because that good news was brought to us. <clears throat> Wouldn't you want to share that same good news with others? That gospel message is, is what was clearly and vividly portrayed to the Galatians. It is what has been done for you and I as well. And they believed just as you put your faith and your trust in Christ as your way of salvation and Lord of your life, the Galatians did the same thing. 
Paul reminds that and reminds them of this, even as he's still somewhat frustrated. Look at verse three. He still refers to them as fools. The same way he started off the paragraph, he once again shows his disappointment in them and he calls them out on it. He says, look, don't be so foolish. You see, this is the, 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 the next rhetorical question and it hits another one of the one versus another argument. The, the first was works versus faith and now he gets into the beginning versus completion. One commentator offers this paraphrase and I like it. He paraphrases this, this area. He says, this, it could sound like this. Since then you have received the spirit as a gift and not as a reward, being saved through your ears, as it were, and not by your hands, how have you now gone completely crazy? Salvation is an act that is initiated by our Heavenly Father. He loved us before we knew Him. He chose us before the foundation of the world. So when we come to know Christ, do we then just say, okay, yeah, I was saved by that power, but I'll go ahead and live by mine. If we are saved in Him, should we not also live in Him? See, this falls right in line with the argument that Paul has been bringing. Paul is arguing against adding things to salvation. Remember at the end of chapter 2, he says that if works was added to the formula of salvation, then Christ died needlessly. And he didn't really accomplish all that Christ set out to accomplish. Well, the same would ring true of the sealing work of the Holy Spirit and our continual sanctification through the Holy Spirit. If we say, well, yeah, I was saved by grace through faith and not of works, but I'll get to the finish line on my own power. You can see the insanity in that, right? Sometimes that thinking just comes from a certain feeling of arrogance and pride. See, we don't like to admit that we had nothing to do with our salvation. Because what it does is it confirms what we already know, and that is this, that we are completely lost and, and, and on our own, unable to save ourselves. But God, in his grace and his mercy and his love, he reached us with that gift of salvation. And some people will see that just simply as their ticket and their escape from hell. But it's so much more than that. See, my desire to be with Christ is much stronger than my desire not to go to hell. See, he is my God. He is my Savior. He's your God, your Savior. We owe our lives to him, our eternity to him. And I tell you this, I don't want to be separated from him no matter where it is, not for one moment. However, if salvation is just a ticket to ride, then the life that we live then becomes about us. It becomes about what can I do in and of my own self, in my own, my own strength. And we get the sense of confidence. And it's confidence in the wrong thing. It's confidence in ourselves. And we get so confident in ourselves that we think, oh, now I'll take over the work and, and I'll make sure I finish well. See, confidence is only as good as the one that you put confidence in. Paul tells us where his confidence was. Philippians 1.6, he says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. See, the only confidence that we can have and should have is in our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is working through the power of the Holy Spirit in and through us. He is molding us to be more like himself. He is bringing us through these ups and downs. And, and all the while, it's preparing us for the purpose that he has for it for us, and that is to glorify him and enjoy him forever. And we can only do that by living in him, by following his word, by relying on his power and not our own, relying on his wisdom and not wisdom of man. It's God from start to finish. Listen, listen as one author describes it, he says, what Paul wants him to see is the Christian life is one that starts, is maintained, and comes to a culmination only through dependence on the activity of God's spirit. 
If it's how you began, it's how you will finish. These questions will keep coming in rapid fashion. Verse four, look at the next question. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? I mean, it's, it's kind of like a broken record, but again, these, these questions are rhetorical in nature. But what is Paul referring to? Were these Galatians, were they suffering? Were they being persecuted? Now, I'm sure at all times throughout history, the church has been persecuted in some fashion or another. But it really depends on the era, whether there was indeed actual suffering or not. You could say, perhaps, that the church is under persecution in America, and to somewhat sense you might be right. However, do you feel persecuted? Do you feel like you're suffering? Perhaps a little bit, but not anything like maybe our brothers and sisters are in other parts of the world. I think that the NIV translate this much better, which is probably what most of you guys are reading from. And translate the term suffer as experience. There, 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 there are arguments made for a negative tone here, some to be made for a positive tone. But if you go by the context here, there is nothing in the context here to suggest that the Galatians were being persecuted. The better translation seems to be experience. And whether it's a positive experience or negative, I don't find that it changes the meaning of this all at all. The point that Paul is making is that whatever you have gone through in your lifetime, it is not in vain. It's not without effect. It's not without purpose. As a believer, we can look back at our life and we can see all the things that we would view as negative, see all the things that we would view as uh, positive, and you can recognize that each one of those experiences has helped shape who you are today. It helped mold you into who you are today. Isaiah 64 8 says this about that fact. But now, O oh Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. And all of us are the work of your hands. What a, what a beautiful illustration that is. See, that illustration, in fact, is what God gave to the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 18. God wanted to illustrate his power to Jeremiah and to his people and his sovereignty. And so he directs Jeremiah to a potter's house. So when Jeremiah shows up, he arrives, the potter is working something. He's got something working on the wheel. And while he's watching him, it seemed as if the piece of clay got sort of messed up. And so the potter took it and remolded it and remade it and reshaped it until the potter was pleased. Then in verse five, the Lord speaks to Jeremiah. He says, can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. Do you trust the potter? Do you trust that the potter is molding you and shaping you? And you may look back and you may say, man, what I just went through was messed up. But is the potter still in control? The potter knows what he's doing. The potter knows what the clay needs and knows how it needs to be shaped and formed and what the design is supposed to be. The potter is sovereign. See, the events in your life, what God has brought you to and through, regardless of whether or not you view them as good or bad, is not in vain. We, of course, have a different definition of good and bad, don't we? But really, when you look at it, everything, what we go through as a believer, it's really all good. That's the great recipe of your life. That God works all things for his glory and for our benefit. And so if it's glorifying God, it must be good. See, these Galatians, man, they had been through a lot already in their young existence. The gospel, see, the gospel finally makes it to them. They hear the gospel. They receive the gospel. And then people come along and they try to distort it. it had, they had their ups. They had their downs. But their lives were not pointless. 
If you were here last week, you heard Pastor Jason speak about something similar. Essentially the same thing in John 9 when he, when he spoke about the blind man. And the people asked, why is this guy blind? Did he sin? Did his parents sin? And neither happened. See, God will allow things in your life for his glory so that his power may be displayed in you. It's not in vain. Your experiences, your testimony is not in vain. It's not pointless or useless. It's not without success or effect. It's profitable. So I wonder, what is your story? You know, as a believer, you all have a story. You, you, you've lived your story. You know your story. You should appreciate your story and you should share your story. Look, some of my favorite times in all of ministry is when I get to sit and listen to somebody's story. When they open up about their lives and about their struggles and about their successes and they, they show what God has done in their lives and what he's doing in their lives and what they hope that he continues to do in their lives. Look, it's their testimony. It's a statement or an acknowledgement of God's work in our lives. The point of our testimony is not you. The point of your story is not bringing light to how bad you, you were and to glorify that. No, the point of your story is God and his saving and sustaining power in your life. Paul wants them to know that none of it, none of it was for waste in verse 4. And finally, we come to the conclusion, verse 5. This is the conclusion to the argument, or at least all the questions that Paul has been giving. And yet one more rhetorical. Look at verse 5. So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And I want you to see something here. It's very subtle, but it's crystal clear. It's something that has been since the beginning of Scripture and, and is clear all the way throughout Scripture. Look back at verse 1 in our text today. Real quickly, look back at verse 1. Who's the subject there? Who is he talking about? It's Jesus. Look into verse 2. And who do we see? We see the Spirit. We see the Holy Spirit. And when we get to verse 5, we see just the word He. And He, of course, is talking about God the Father. In five short verses, we see the Trinity in crystal clear HD. And even though the word Trinity is a sort of Christianese term, we all see it. We all know it. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And here in verse 5, we can clearly see that he that Paul is referring to is not the Son and it's not the Spirit. It must be God the Father. And we can see that supported in other places in Scripture as God the Father being the one who gives. John 3.16, you know this. For God so loved the world that he gave, right? John then goes on to say, these things I've spoken to you while abiding with you. This is Jesus, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things. And it's not that the Father simply gives the Spirit. Look in your text. It says that he provides the Spirit. One commentator points out this. He said, provide is from the root word, which means to supply abundantly with great generosity. And it was also used of a groom's vow to love and care for his bride. Our God loves us. He provides for us on an ongoing basis. He provided his spirit. He will not take it away. It is what he has promised. John records this fact as Jesus shares with his disciples. Jesus says, look, I will ask the Father and he will give you. He will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. He says, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, who the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. Paul confirms this back to the Ephesian believers in Ephesians 1 as he says, the Holy Spirit has been given as a promise. He was given as a pledge of our inheritance 
with a view of redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. See, the Father has provided the Spirit as a promise, as a guarantee or a deposit, if you will. That's why Paul can confidently write in chapter 8 of his letter that nothing, nothing can separate us from him. We are redeemed by the blood of Christ and through the power of his Holy Spirit, we are sealed. And this amazing gift of salvation can only be through the awesome power of our God, as Paul references in verse 5. See, the word miracle here is literally the works of power by God. See, that is salvation. Salvation is a work of power by our God. See, it is he that, it began, that existed before time began. It is he who spoke the world into existence. And by his work of power, man was created from the dust of the, the ground and woman was created from man. It is by almighty God's strong hand that he sustained the nation of Israel for 40 years of wandering. It's through his power how he prophesied through his own creation that he would send his son to die for us. It's that same miraculous power that Jesus came in and lived in and the same power in which he died and he gave himself for our sins and the same power in which he defeated sin and death, conquering the grave. And it's only by his amazing and miraculous power that we can know him as our savior from sin. And it's only by his power that we are held and sustained. And it's by his power that one day we will be with him in glory for eternity. See, that's God. That's his power that's what the message was that they heard. That's what the message was that the Galatian believers heard. Look at how Paul closes out this section in verse 5. He, see, he asked the question, uh, how, how do, who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you? Do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith. Look, I love the writing style of the Apostle Paul. You can clearly tell when you're reading a Pauline letter just because of the style and the structure. And see, what Paul does here through the power of the Holy Spirit is he is able to craft these paragraphs in such a way that you and I don't miss the point. He repeats what he said in, the first, in verse 2, signifying how important it is and how impactful it should be in our lives. This is your testimony. That you have been saved, not by works, not by effort, but by hearing with faith. It is a gift that was given. Paul repeated something similar to the church of Ephesus, but he expounds on it a little bit. Ephesians 1, he says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the power of the Holy Spirit. See, God's word is powerful. The gospel, the good news is powerful. You have heard the gospel. You have responded to the gospel and it cannot end there. We live out the gospel, which means we must share our story. We must. There's a story of a pastor who was sent to plant the church in a very hostile city. In a neighborhood that was dominated by violence and drugs and perversion. And while he's making the rounds, introducing himself to pastors who are already serving in that city, one pastor warned him. He said, you know what? So many others have come here to minister to that demographic. But the pastor said, they just aren't reachable. This man, though he had served in the special forces, he was a big man, a manly man. He broke down in tears. He explained to the pastor, if the gospel has no power to save them, it has no power to save me. See, the gospel has the power to save. But it must be shared. It must be preached. It must be lived by our church, by you, the church. 
This is what Paul is so thankful for as he shares with the Thessalonian believers, as he says to them, he says constantly, I thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. See, that is the work that had to have been done. And this work of salvation cannot be accomplished by any man. It is accomplished by God through Jesus Christ, and we are sealed by his spirit. We must share it. See, it is God. It is God who has given us his spirit by which we live and by which we will be perfected. And we will stand before him one day. We will worship him for eternity. But before that, before all that happens, having heard the word of God, you've responded to the word of God. Now may we, as the body, go out and share his word, share it with our lives, share it with our mouths, because people need to hear the word of God. How will they hear and how will they respond? It's because you're going to share it. Let's pray. Father God, you call us not just to believe, but to live out our faith. What an amazing call. What a challenging call. Lord, we understand that salvation is by grace through faith. It's not of works so that we can't boast. When we tell our story, we're not boasting about ourselves. We're boasting about what you've done in our lives. What an amazing story. And it doesn't matter if we were saved at age five or age 105. We all have the same story. And it's equally as miraculous. We were once lost and now we're found. And the world needs to hear that. The world needs to see that lived out in our lives. Lord, may they see it. May they see it from us. May they hear it from our lips. Lord, may we live consistently. Father, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you for the guarantee. We thank you that we are sealed until the day of redemption. Lord, help us to live well. Help us to finish well. We know we can only do that through your power. So we thank you that your word has been declared today. Your word has been heard. And what you require of us is to respond. So Lord, I pray for that strength and that guidance as each one of us leaves this place today. And we offer it to you in your son's precious name. Amen.